Once upon a time, in a not so far away land, there was a woman named Park Geun-hye who governed as president over South Korea. She was the most powerful person in all the land, presiding over her democratic republic since 2013. But life in the presidential blue house could get lonely. Luckily, President Park had a dear, dear friend, and her name was Choi Soon-sil. But one day, a dark, dark secret emerged. President Park had been telling Choi top secret government affairs that she shouldn't have known. <laughs> Citizens of the Republic took to the streets to protest the abuse of power and eventually had the highest constitutional court remove her from her position of authority. But what happens now? Which new leader has taken up the task of attempting to mend the social divides of the Republic? Stay tuned to find out more. Hi, I'm Justin. And I'm Linda. And you're listening to The, the Youth, Youth Element, Element, a podcast series on East Asia's millennials. Over the course of five weeks, we travel to five cities in East Asia. Shanghai, Taipei, Hong Kong, Tokyo, and Seoul. To listen to the voices of millennials and learn more about contemporary East Asia through their views and the stories of their own lives. Stay with us on The Youth Element. Welcome to part three of our three-part series on political engagement. Previously, on parts one and two, we explored the topics of political engagement amongst millennials in Japan, Taiwan, and Hong Kong. So now we're hopping over to South Korea to dig a bit deeper into how and why youth were and continue to be at the center of the park scandal. And later, we'll also have a special guest with us to talk about what it's been like since the impeachment of President Park and since the election of South Korea's new president, Moon Jae-in. All right, so let's get right into it. So if you want to crash course on what the whole park scandal was and why it blew up into a crazy and weird prolonged nationwide affair, grab your popcorn and settle in, dear listeners, because we have one hell of a story. So this whole scandal, I think a good place to start is before everything, before the impeachment, before the protest, and even before we knew anything suspicious about park at all. And it all began at Ihua Women's University long, long ago. What? No, it wasn't that long ago. <clears throat> what? Oh, wait. I guess you're right. It wasn't that long ago. But sure feels like it, though. So much happened so fast. Okay, let's try this again. Okay, so last year, July 28, 2016 to be exact, students at Ihua, one of South Korea's most prestigious universities, staged a massive multi-day protest calling for the resignation of the university's president, Choi Kyung-hee, and for the abolishment of a government plan to bring future life to Ihua. This isn't some ET phone home stuff. LIFE stands for Light Up Your Future in Ihua College, and it was a continuing education program funded by the Ministry of Education to provide bachelor degrees to working adults who chose not to pursue higher education after high school. It offered programs in areas like beauty, fashion, new media, and nutrition. According to the ministry, this program was to promote equal opportunities to access quality education, especially for, quote, temporary female workers and social minorities. Students at Ihua, however, were quick to criticize the project, arguing that the university was selling diplomas for commercial motives, trading away 130 years of legacy for 3 billion won profit, which is roughly 3.3 million Canadian, and even solidifying traditional gender roles by branding this as a specialized model for women. 
Above all, students were angry that the university was going to carry out this plan without any consultation with the student body. And this touched on a nerve that sparked a much bigger protest against the university's undemocratic and money-driven ways of operation. So students staged a massive sit-in at the university central building, and some faculty members were even locked in the buildings for two whole days. Police were called in by the university to help escort these professors out, and figures state that 1,600 policemen were called in to quell the protests. But this only angered the students even more. Students communicated their demands primarily through a Facebook page called Save Our Ihua, and their efforts gained support from university alumni and several faculty members as well. According to the Korea Herald, more than 25,000 people signed a petition to remove the university's president Choi from her post. And this inspired a similar movement from students across other universities as well, including Dongguk University, which was another institution selected by the Ministry of Education to host the same program. This student versus institution standoff lasted for days. But the students' tenacity paid off in many ways. For one, on August 3rd, the university's president Choi stood humbly in front of the students to apologize and announced that the university was not going to go through with the life program. She also promised that no student or staff who supported the sit-in would be punished. Ten high-ranking staff members also ended up resigning after the entire ordeal. Choi continued to serve as president after all of this, but not for much longer. Yeah, the university's headaches were far from over. In fact, this was just the beginning. The beginning of a much larger drama that saw not only the president of the university removed, but, as we now know, saw the president of the entire country impeached. Yes, dear listeners, this Ihua episode was just the prelude, and now we move on to the next chapter, Horses, Spoons, and Shamans. So back to where we left off with our angry Ihua students, we mentioned how their rage started with the LIFE program, but soon became a bigger protest against suspicions of other shady dealings by the university. So even after Choi announced the cancellation of the LIFE program, the student demonstrations continued, and during this period, resourceful students began to do some snooping, and they began to uncover how one student at Ihua was receiving a lot of preferential treatment from the university. A special probe was launched, revealing some pretty damning information. The student in question was Chung Yura. Chung was a member of Korea's national dressage team, which I learned is a fancy term for advanced horse training. Although her grades were below the university admissions cutoff, she was allegedly accepted into the prestigious institution in 2015 as an equestrian athlete, and also because she won a gold medal in the 2014 Asian Games. But with the help of Iwa students sleuthing, it became known that Chung did not win her medal until after the admissions deadlines. Moreover, equestrian was only coincidentally added as a category for consideration the year that Chung was admitted. Hmm, sounds fishy. Beyond this, it was also found that the university ignored Chung's many absences from class and even gave her decent grades for exams and assignments that she completely missed. And in the incredibly intense and competitive education system, where the majority of youth give hours away to studying in cram schools just to get into universities like Iwa, naturally, they were not happy to learn that meritocracy had taken a back seat. Right. We've probably all heard the phrase or some variation of someone being born with a silver spoon in their mouth, basically saying that an individual is born into a position of privilege. In the context of South Korea, though, this phrase has been adapted and reappropriated by millennials in a way that incorporates different levels or classes of spoons. 
each describing a different level of socioeconomic status or position in society based on family inheritance. This is known as the spoon class theory, and we'll go much more in depth into this in another episode. But for now, it's handy to know that there are typically four classes of spoons, with the gold spoon at the top and the dirt spoon at the bottom. So the gold spoon represents the top one percent of society, the elites. You're basically set for life if you're born into a family that ticks off the boxes of the gold spoon category. So Chung herself actually kind of flaunted the sheen of her own gold spoon in a Facebook post back in 2014, and this fueled even more resentment towards notions of elitism amongst the rest of South Korea's millennials, many of whom jokingly referred to themselves as dirt spoons. So in her Facebook post, she wrote, "Blame your own parents if they don't have the ability. Don't point fingers at us if your parents don't have what it takes. Money is also a form of ability." Ouch! Girls got attitude. Yep, and lots of money. So as the probe into Ihua continued, some even began referring to Chung as a platinum or a diamond spoon. Her metamorphosis from gold to diamond was linked to her mother, Choi Sunshil, and together they embezzled billions from huge conglomerates, including nearly one million in Canadian, from Samsung to buy Chung a horse. And not just any horse, a racing horse named Vitana V. But as it turns out, all of these revelations surrounding Ihua. Chung and Choi, which let's not forget was first instigated by the university students, were a critical missing piece in a larger ongoing investigation into possible corruption in the government that started in 2015. So Choi was actually a very, very close friend to now ex-president Park, and this is where the story gets even more surreal. When Park was still a young girl, there was an assassination attempt in 1974 against her father, then President Park Chung-hee. However, it was her mother that accidentally ended up in the crosshairs. Then a man named Choi Tae-min stepped in. Choi, bear with me here, was a policeman turned Buddhist monk turned Christian pastor, but some just call him a shamanic cult leader. So he had close relations to the Park family, and he won the young grieving Park over with the claim that he could channel her mother and deliver her her messages. And eventually, thus blossomed a lifelong friendship between young Park and the shaman's daughter. When Park herself became president in 2013, Choi still exerted a considerable amount of influence over her, and this isn't just like a girlfriend helping out another pick her outfits. Choi had zero security clearance, but still had access to the president's itinerary, had a say in her policy decisions, and even made edits to important speeches, and all of that on top of the money she embezzled through her connections to the president. As all of this was slowly revealed. More and more outraged students and youth across the country started protesting against this injustice. So there we have it, dear listeners. This was the crazy story of horses, spoons, and shamans that led to South Korea's incredible presidential scandal. And since the beginning, it was the country's youth that really carried the torch and made sure that all of the corruption at the top of the political ladder would be exposed. They wanted to uphold the values of their democracy, to restore transparency and good governance, be it at the level of their university or the national government. And they wanted to make sure that diamond spoons like Chung would not live out her happily ever after so easily. Looking back at everything, it's kind of amazing how all of these mass protests started with some frustrated students at Ihwal Women's University. I'm amazed how their snooping opened up a can of worms that even brought down the president. Yeah, and an interesting analysis that I found was that you know even though this whole scandal kind of surrounded three women like President Park, Choi, and Chung, some people see this as a victory for women because it was Ihua University that started the whole thing. In fact, when we asked her interviews in Seoul to talk about the scandal, they too noted the catalytic role that Ihua students played in all of this. 
And our friend Sarah also noted how the diamond spoon treatment that Chung Yura received helped trigger a shift in youth perceptions towards political engagement. So I think to start off, like in retrospect, like long time before it must be, uh, it feels like. Um, then I recall that it was our Ihua Women's University. Like they were the first initiate, like to c- touch upon this sort of weird stuff. Meaning, like it was not President Park's incident, but still it kind of linked to that. So from the long like past of finding corruptions and talking about wrongdoings, and then we in the end found that it's all linking back to President Park. So in that regards, I think the students' role, whether they meant it or not, in terms of this particular situation, it did influence a lot so I felt like generally people were very inactive in terms of what's important in politics either to national politics regional politics or even in their like life cycles of politics but then when that incident happened it, it was kind of a crush like to everyone it was like what like everything we worked for like we felt like we were up this far but look at Chong Yura. I mean she has good parents and that's how she gets good grades that's how she gets a good money and or horses and everything and then it kind of came to us maybe it's not changing if we don't say things if we don't stand up And just to further cement the centrality of students in this national affair, it's worth noting that the anti-park protests really started to build up in late November and December. And no, it wasn't everyone stressing out about finishing their Christmas shopping, but rather it was the stress of exam season that really had the youth on edge. Here's Juwon, one of our interviewees in Seoul, for more on this. It was really interesting when you consider the the timing of protests. It was like October, November, and December. So it was when high school students tried to go to college. So it was really, really busy moment for them. So I remember that the, the hottest part of the hottest timing of the protest was like a week ago of the national entrance exam, college entrance exam. So they argued that like, what, why do we have to study when the you know, girl who has rich parents, then she can go easily to the college. Why should we have to study. They were raised about that. And also, it was not what we learned in the textbook. That was also their claims. It was not democracy. Clearly, the youth element was strong in this one, and their protests were a reflection of the corruption that was so deeply rooted in both the political and corporate realms, given how it was such a large company like Samsung that funded one girl's equestrian dreams and how the youth really felt personally victimized by this collusion between state and capital. This was something that, regardless of your political leanings, banded all youth together, from elementary school to college and beyond. And we can't stress enough that it was a national student movement. In fact, according to one of our interviewees, Julie, when students outside of Seoul expressed their interest in partaking in the protests in the capital, many students even took the initiative to rent buses to bring their peers into the middle of the action. The very first beginning of the movements, um, it was mostly um, students from Seoul, and we have this student, like student council union within um, universities of Seoul. So we gather all together. We set a date and the venue to meet, and then we march um, to Gwangwamun. So that's how like the movements first work. Um, within the students, but then after as this just spread national in national scale, students from other regions, most likely I don't know Busan, Gwangju, one of the major cities down there, um, they came up renting buses, and it's the student council who actually hosted all of this, and they just 
um, they um, posted things like on Facebook, saying that we're going to rent buses to go up for demonstrations, which was held every Sunday. And if those want to go, you can register, and we can just go all up. And and if we do, they come to the venue um, that we promised before, and then we just move together as um, a university union. The scene that Julie is depicting shows how all of this was a very organic, bottom-up movement and a pretty cool coming together of youth from all regions and walks of life. They wanted to rally together in the capital against Park and what she embodied. Sarah and Julie were both present at many of the protests, and through our conversations with them, we found that there were many other examples of student solidarity as well. For instance, at the rallies, there was a stage set up for anyone to walk up and make their voice heard. And also, I felt there were a lot of young people. I, I was surprised to see like high schoolers, middle schoolers, and even primary students. And I still remember the kid who was 12 year old who came up and then made a speech on her own without any of the adults' help. And then she, they were so genuine. I mean, their insight was something that we never thought is possible from the teenager who doesn't even have a voting power. Or maybe that was why they were so angry. Like they were accusing like adults, like adults' life. I mean, we, we really want things to be fair. We want to like be taught for the right thing. We want to like study the like justice and all those things. And I felt that was very interesting how this has influenced such a different age groups as well. It's interesting, because in this anecdote, Sarah mentions how there were even primary school children who were involved in the protests, with some even sharing genuine concerns about their country. We asked a little more about this, about what it was that got even children involved. And I guess it shouldn't be too much of a surprise in this digital day and age, but Julie told us how social media played a critical role in disseminating information, and even looped in celebrities and K-pop stars. In Korea, expressing your own political views, especially as a celebrity, was a very dangerous movement to do because they thought it was a it was taboo to do that. Just expressing whatever you were conservative or uh, conservative or liberal, it was a very dangerous thing to do. But one by one, after this incident, a lot of um, celebrities, especially those with big influence, they started to move out. They started to talk about um, post photos on Instagram or Facebook, Twitter, or whatever their social media um, platforms were. And that kind of, I think that had a big influence, especially on young students. Um, until recently, I was working at this um, English Academy, and a lot of kids... I was surprised that these elementary school students were quite well aware with the information. And I asked them, where did you get that? How did you get to know him in the first place? Because you don't really read news. And they said, oh, um, the idol that I'm supporting, the boy band, um, the actor, the actress that I like, they posted it on their Instagram or uh, Facebook. So that's how they actually got interested because the one they idolize is interested. So in that part, I think they played quite a huge role. So like most millennials around the world, social media and new forms of communication are becoming the main platforms through which we're consuming our news and engaging with our societies. So the digital realms are becoming ever more important in the political protest scene. And naturally, this was no exception in South Korea, where digital platforms have created new strategies and approaches to protesting. According to Juwon, it was the convergence of new and traditional forms of media that played a very important role in providing a voice for youth and even in uncovering more incriminating details against Park. I think it's my personal opinion, but um, the most different thing from other you know, past uh, protests was the existence of the progress media. It was JTBC. 
I remember it was founded four years ago, but it was kind of really one independent progressive broadcasting system existent. That media was actually kind of spark that made us all know about those corruptions. So、uh, that media was quite different from other media in that they are linked to Facebook and then also they are linked to Kakao Talk and. You know the consumption of media was really easy compared to、uh, other several protests. So、um, younger generations quickly absorbed the very very specific informations. It was really easy. I remember. So、uh, so usually the kind of news program broadcasting at eight p.m. or nine p.m. clips of the news program was uploaded in the Facebook, and then I I remember like ten thousand and more likes are. Uh, on that news program, and also the news program was usually broadcast with the TV te- television, but、um, it was broadcast to internet from that moment. I remember so well.、Uh, well, it was really easy to consume the media, and we know that, so we really can protest easily for that. Another great example of how youth made use of their resources was when a team of students at Hankook University of Foreign Studies capitalized on their individual talent and translated their protest speeches into several different languages, including English, Mandarin, Japanese, French, Italian, Spanish, Portuguese, and Swedish. This creative initiative was picked up by news channels like JTBC, which widened the scope of their messages even more. If you want to take a gander at the video, we've included it along with other resources on the Asia Pacific Foundation's website, www.asiapacific.ca. And like we mentioned in our earlier cases, there was somewhat of a generational divide at play here. Students were upset with the way in which politics and society has played out, revealing a significant difference in the way the political system and even Park's political legacy is perceived across generations. So most young generations came out to protest because they believe that that is right. We believe that the older generations are really sealed with the their memories of Korean War, and then also the fast economic development under dictatorship. So they are really immersed in that memory, and so they don't really see what's the reality now.、Um, you see, the present Park is the daughter of the. Old President Park, who was dictator, and、um, they said that they should protect her. It was really kind of thing of really Asian thing like dynasty or as and also Confucius. It's although I mean they may may my kind of misunderstanding, but it's kind of something element some elements of Confucius. So we think that they don't know the element of democracy. They don't they don't really、uh, how. Democratic politics should work. We know, with younger generation, know that President Park has a limit to use her power, right? But older people still believe that she is something like queen. So, like her other case studies, a similar feature of these movements was the way in which different upbringings of South Korean youth, who have only understood Korea as a democracy, have a different understanding of the role of government from their parents, who grew up in an authoritarian era. For some older generations who saw the country transition from military rule into a democratic society, economic growth took a more important precedence. But for youth, they don't take their democracy for granted, and the importance of having a transparent and truly democratic government really came out. Just like for the youth in Japan, Taiwan, and Hong Kong. Right, 
And whether it was the Article 9 Constitution protests that we saw in Japan, or the stories from the Umbrella Movement and the Sunflower Movement in both Hong Kong and Taiwan, youth were undeniably at the forefront of these movements, yearning to make their ideas heard in different ways, including, of course, staging mass protests. We were actually very fortunate to have witnessed one of these protests during our trip. So Justin and I arrived in Seoul in early March, about two weeks before the final impeachment decision by the Constitutional Court. And one of the things that stood out to us the most was the incredible level of organization. It was a totally controlled chaos, if you want to call it that, in that there were hundreds of people sitting down in orderly fashion, each with banners, balloons, flyers, huge speakers that were lifted up by giant cranes, and a giant screen upon a stage blaring out calls to action. And there was really a concerted effort to show how protests in present-day Korea were really different from those back in the 1980s. And in the context of Korea, the student protest that comes most to mind is the 1980 Gwangju Uprising, also known as the May 18th Democratic Uprising, which, through a quick Google search, brings up words like massacre and shows dramatic images of violence. So now linking back to our previous episodes again, if there's one thing that youth today want to show, it was A, they weren't violent, and B, they weren't there to cause any trouble. Goodbye, political allergies! So as Sarah described, this time around... All participants sent a clear message of breaking away from the past image of student protests as being messy and chaotic. There was a conscious effort to tell everyone that, hey, we aren't the bad guys here. We're going to do this protest, but we're going to be responsible about it. Yeah, and it's amazing how this momentum was carried on for so long. Speaking to the fact that the youth were so determined to see the entire thing through and not rest until Park was ousted. In fact, the demonstrations were still more or less a weekly affair by the time we got to Seoul in March. But interestingly, the dynamic had changed by that point. By March, people started splitting into more pro-park and anti-park camps as the decision for impeachment neared. And again, this brought out an even sharper generational divide in attitudes. We learned a little more about the symbolism behind the two views when we spoke to Juan. So we have broad national protest against park, and then time goes by, it, you know, it usually lessens. And then the counter-movement actually raised a lot. So um, we have two type of protests now. One is candlelight protest. It's, uh, it's anti-park anti movement. And the, the counter movement of this movement, we, uh, they call national flag protest, taegukki protest. So um, usually all the people symbolize the national flag as their loyalty and then um, their history. So um, they believe that those young people, those progressive guys, make the nation worse. It was literally three days after we came back to Canada in early March that the impeachment decision happened. Yes, the court ruled 8-0 to zero for impeachment, which happened on March 10, 2017. And South Korea began immediately preparing for an emergency election to replace Park, which took place on May 9th, where we saw the election of President Moon Jae-in. Looking back on everything, it's pretty amazing that all of this, beginning from the Ihua case to the new election, happened all in under a year. What a crazy ride it was. Who would have known that there was a modern-day Rasputin lurking in the Blue House? And they would have gotten away with it too if it weren't for those meddling kids. Or, I mean, university students. But now that this weird chapter in South Korean politics has come to a close, what's become of the characters we started with, like Ihua University's President Choi? She's in jail. And the other Choi? Choi Shun-shil? Jail. What about her daughter, Chung Yura? 
stripped of her university and high school diploma, and undergoing trial to seal her fate in, yep, you guessed it, jail. Ouch. Okay, so everyone is about to go to jail or be in jail. There's clearly no happily ever after for this lot. But Ben, what's the next chapter for our newly politically invigorated South Korean millennials? Well, we won't leave you hanging. To switch it up, we're bringing in a special guest to talk more about what's been happening post-impeachment. So don't go anywhere. But before you break, we'll leave you with some audio clips that we collected of protesters calling for President Park's impeachment back in March 2017. Welcome back to the youth element. So before the break, we dove into the unfolding of the whole park scandal and how South Korea's millennials not only felt personally impacted by the corruption, the cronyism, and the nepotism, but also how it was this younger generation that really took it upon themselves to expose that surreal relationship between Park and her confidant Choi, and ultimately to fight until they saw Park impeached and out of the office. So what's next? Well, now we're turning over to what it's been like after the protests, and we'll be hearing from a discussion that Justin had with Jay. Jay is a junior research fellow at the Asia Pacific Foundation of Canada, and she actually wrote a blog quite recently entitled, A New Moon Over South Korea, High Hopes and Skepticism. Jay's blog takes us into the journey of her personal trip into South Korea back in December 2016, and it also provides a lot of new insight into what the political scene has been like since Park has been impeached, and since a new president has entered the Blue House. So I'm here today with the lovely Jay to give us some more insight on what happened during the Park protests, and also to share with us what it's been like since President Park has been impeached. Thanks for being here today, Jay. Hi everyone, thank you for having me. Okay, so just before we start, I'd like to let everyone know that everything that I'm about to say today is just the information that I gathered from talking to the participants, interviewing some people, but by no means do they represent everyone in South Korea or even the youth of South Korea. Sounds great. Thanks for letting us know. So, to start off with a big question, what inspired your interest in South Korea? To give our listeners a bit of context, you were in South Korea back in December, right? So tell me a little bit more about your trip. Okay, so I visited South Korea in December of 2016. I'm actually ethnically Korean, so a lot of my family members are still back in Korea. I went back to um, just spend time with my family over the Christmas, but I realized that in December of 2016 is when the protests are really revving up. So what was it like being there then in the middle of all the action? You know, kind of set the stage for me and our listeners. Right, so it was a huge protest, as all of you have seen. There's been hundreds of thousands of people that came out. It was interesting, though, because I went right around Christmas time, and when I joined, it was Christmas Eve. So there was a lot of Santa Claus outfits, a lot of Rudolph noses, um, people singing Christmas carols, but kind of mixed that with an anti-park protest sentiment. So it was very, very interesting. So nothing spells Christmas cheer quite like Santa beards and political slogans. 
In fact, the scene that Jay is describing to Justin was unofficially dubbed as the Santa protest, and it was one of the anti-park demonstrations with the highest turnout rates, with roughly 550,000 people gathered in the cold outside of the Blue House. According to an article by the BBC, there was even 200 to 300 young people dressed in Santa outfits, handing out books and Christmas cards to the children at the demonstration, and you can hear them chanting things like, gifts to children and handcuffs to park. So even if the whole demonstration was underwritten by a grim undertone of mass, nationwide discontent, the word festive still does seem like an appropriate word to describe the scene, and it's quite a an unique and unprecedented moment in South Korea's recent history, and in the history of the country's moments of mass political activism overall. So, as an observant outsider who's connected to Korea, how did you personally feel about being there and witnessing all of this? Well, I thought it was very interesting because we think of protests and we immediately associate that with a violent protest. We see police brutality and people getting hurt. But this one was overwhelmingly peaceful and it was a lot of youth involvement as well. Um, what's interesting is I actually got to talk to my mom about this. And so this would have been 30 years ago when she was in university and she too was a youth in South Korea. She was actually forced by her student group in university to partake in the pro-democratic protests that were going on at that time. Mm -hmm. And apparently it wasn't so peaceful then. So I got the chance to kind of compare what it was like 30, 40 years ago as opposed to now where it seemed really more like a festival and really more like a gathering of sorts than a riot or a protest. I'm glad you brought up the story of your mom engaging in these protests, actually, because we started this series on political engagement with a quick glimpse into history. We talked about how in each of our cases, there's an historical precedence to all of these contemporary events, and how earlier cases of student or youth activism have really influenced the protest scene today. Do you think this whole park scandal has shifted historically the political scene in Korea in any way? Or do you see more streams of continuity between the past and the present? I think there's definitely some sort of difference between, I mean, my mom was never really politically conscious or politically aware, but that being said, she still went out to these protests. And I, I think it would be a stretch to say that everyone in this protest, especially the youth, kind of went out on their own will. I think it became a very cool thing in Korea, especially among the youth population, to kind of partake in this protest. And as soon as K-pop stars and celebrities were posting it on their Instagram, it almost seemed very ignorant for someone to not partake in the protest. And they were kind of ostracized as being pro-park if they didn't join the weekly protests. So there was a lot of pressure for people to come out then. But you just mentioned now that K-pop stars and celebrities were also posting in social media about these protests. Can we say that the whole park scandal even caused a rare crossover between the spheres of popular culture and the political sphere? Yes, definitely. We saw a huge crossover this time. Um, traditionally, I think it's been a little bit taboo for celebrities to, to give their political opinion on everything just because the nation is so divided on a lot of issues. But this time around, you saw a lot of K-pop artists, a lot of celebrities who fully support the movement and they would Instagram their LED candle lights that they have. And it became a very socially aware and conscious thing for celebrities to do as well. And that being said, there were huge concerts that were held and um, there was a lot of artists who kind of sang to to the sentiment of the people. They kind of recognized the sadness and the fear and the anger that these people were experiencing. So I hear from a lot of the participants that it was a very cathartic moment when these singers that they only saw on TV would address them in person and kind of sing these. A lot of times it was like love songs. 
Well, who wouldn't want to see their favorite celebrity, right? But as you know, Linda and I were in Seoul in March, and I guess the whole protest scene by that point must have been pretty different from what you experienced in December. And we walked by one of these demonstrations once, and we could really see that there was actually quite a strong pro-part camp standing in opposition to the anti-part camp. But did you know anyone that had a different perspective on impeaching Park? Um, I personally know someone who was in the pro-park protest as well. When I was there, it was happening, but it was just on one March, much smaller scale. Um, what was interesting, though, was the demographic of the pro-park protests. It was overwhelmingly the older generation. They see Park as sort of the daughter of the nation, her being the first daughter of previous leader Park Chung-hee. So they, they feel more sentimental and more heartbroken by what happened to her than outraged. We've been talking a lot about generational divides on political issues, be it in Japan, Taiwan, or Hong Kong, and we can see it again here. In fact, if we look at the voting demographics for the election in 2012, where Park won by a narrow margin, it was predominantly those 50 and above that sided overwhelmingly with Park and her conservative party. But at the same time, something that Justin and I learned while on our trip to Seoul was that there was also a slight regional divide in attitudes that emerged more clearly in March. For instance, one of our interviewees who accompanied us as we walked by the protest, she did admit that she was a little more undecided on the whole thing. For her, as someone originally from Daegu, which is also Park's hometown and a traditional political stronghold for her party, she had more mixed feelings towards Park's impeachment. But as someone demographically looped into the staunchly anti-Park crowd, I can imagine that it might have been a bit more difficult for her to vocalize her views. In fact, Justin and Jay dug deeper into the small but present counter-narrative of the young voices that were more concerned about the potential geopolitical and national consequences of Park's impeachment, and some even pointed out gender biases in the nation's anti-Park stance. We see a lot about the young people that came to protest against President Park and her impeachment. But I also did get to talk to some young people who were for President Park and were against the impeachment. This is interesting because overwhelmingly the young population in Korea have been against her, but their platform, the people that were for President Park still, regardless of what happened, was that, okay, we know she did something wrong, but I mean, corruption isn't anything new to the South Korean government. We're being too hard on her because she's a woman, because she's the first woman president that we've had. And also, if we do get rid of her, and we're left with a void of power, what are we going to do about North Korea? So they really saw that as an opportune time for North Korea to kind of pounce on South Korea and attack them, which is interesting because it kind of shows that the South Korean youth no longer see the North Koreans as brothers or family members like some of the older generation Koreans do, but rather they see them as enemies and people that we should really look out for. Mm. I guess this also aligns with what I heard from some interviewees, that they were worried that the majority might have been united in standing against Park, but if she was actually impeached, a divide would re-emerge again over who would be best to replace her. Or some were even worried about whether or not her replacement would be better than Park at all. But now that we know that President Moon Jae-in won the recent election following the impeachment, and you talked about this in your blog quite a bit, What was it about President Moon that led to his victory? So uh, President Moon Jae-in, he actually ran against Park in 2012, and he actually lost to her on a very narrow margin. And ever since then, he's been positioning himself as Mm anti-Park, or 
I shouldn't say that, it's the antithesis to part. And a lot of the sentiments that we kind of came out during the protests, um, the whole thing about youth unemployment, the youth frustration that goes against that, he really did position himself well and to say, I know all your concerns, I'm going to address all these concerns. Another thing that President Park was known for is her inability to, or her lack of communication with the young voters or anyone in general. Moon really took that to heart and he went out on the streets and you can see interviews with him where he buys young unemployed people a glass of soju. So that's a very, very, it's very close to heart for us where an elder person would buy a younger person a cup of soju. It, it's it's almost, um, it's very it's very near and dear to us when someone does that. So you can see his campaign has been positioned very well to address the, the needs and the sentiments of the young people. Um, quite opposite to what President Park has been doing. So I guess in this sense, what you're saying is that the antithesis to Park is someone who is more down to earth and, and is willing to communicate with the youth. Whereas Park, in comparison, is seen as maybe more like a colder figure that embodies things like elitism and familial lineages. Yes. So interestingly enough, President Moon was actually a youth protester against President Park's father. President Park's father, Park Jung-hee, was some would call a dictator in North in South Korea. He ruled for a very long time, and President Moon was actually imprisoned for a short amount of time for his activities in the protest. So I think a lot of the youth, um, that would have been another thing that resided well with the youth because they thought, oh, look at him. He was young once like us and he's p fighting against a greater power just like us. So it really did add to their sentiment that President Moon was very much like them. So as we can tell from their discussion, appealing and communicating to South Korea's youth was critical to Moon's public image and his victory in the election. At the same time, this also reflects just how important it was for the youth to have a candidate that stood on their side and took their concerns to heart. And this links back to our discussion earlier on all the reasons why the spoon theory has a place in the discourse of the everyday now. But this shouldn't be seen as something that's just important to youth in their future. But having Moon's platform center around the youth and center around being the antithesis to Park shows just how much weight problems like nepotism and elitism have within the current socioeconomic climate as a whole. Let's go back to Justin and Jay for a bit more on this, beginning with a recent case of fake news. That's right, a case of fake news that doesn't involve President Trump. So what happened was, and this kind of attests to how important it is for presidential candidates to address and stay true to being clear and transparent with the youth um, frustration is the People's Republic, which was a, a major party running against Moon, they released during the presidential campaign that Moon's son was actually hired due to nepotism, that Moon had pulled some strings in the back and there was some sort of corruption going on and that's why he got a job. Um, recently, it's been proven that this has been fabricated by a member of the People's Party. So I think that really attests to show that out of all the things that they could have created or out of all the things they could have fabricated, they chose Moon's son, who has gotten a job. I mean, it's not like Moon's son embezzled a bunch of money. It's not like he did something wrong, but it's that he got a job through nepotism and corruption. So that really speaks to how clear 
that really speaks to how close this is to the youth frustration that they don't want anyone who who pull those strings for their family members or close acquaintances anymore, much like uh, it is now being revealed that Park did. So youth employment is clearly a very big issue in South Korea, considering how quickly the whole Park scandal blew up, and especially after it became revealed that nepotism was a major thing that gave Choi's daughter a lot of unfair benefits in life. But now that Moon is in office, he can't be all words and no action. I know he promised to raise the rate of youth employment, make the government more transparent, grant fewer favors to Korea's large conglomerates, while also keeping the economy afloat. So this is a lot in his plate. Do you think Moon will succeed in, you know, walking the talk, especially for youth? And in terms of youth and unemployment, which was a big, big pillar of his, he's vowing to increase public sector jobs. Mm -hmm. And that's kind of what all Korean youth, that's kind of the ultimate profession that a lot of Korean youth want right now because it's known as the iron rice cooker. It means that, um, I mean, no matter what happens, they'll they'll have their pension, they'll have their stable income until the age of 65. So I think it was, it, it would be interesting to see if he could actually complete that or achieve those goals because there's been a lot of critics that say, well, this is a very short-term goal. This leads to jobs and employment for the youth in the short term, but in the long term, as he promised, does it really lead to youth unemployment? Huh. I guess we'll just have to wait and see then. But in the meantime, do you think the youth are currently happy with their new president? I think the youth are very satisfied with what President Moon has done up till this point. And in fact, it's kind of funny because President Moon has gained a sort of a celebrity figure stature in Korea. Um, it's gone as far as people buying out the same cell phone accessories that he has, buying the same shoes that he has. So he's gone in a little bit of a celebrity fame right now. Um, that being said, although it is, sorry for the pun, the honeymoon phase right now, mm-hmm. because it's only been a couple of months since he's been elected, um, I think the youth are very, very happy. I'm glad that they're happy. So last few points. In this series, we've been interested in finding out about what's been happening in the political scene after these big movements have happened and died down. Across our case studies, we've seen how protesters' demonstrations that latch onto a singular cause or a particular goal inevitably and naturally lose their momentum when there is some sort of resolution. So in this case, the months of mass demonstrations latched onto the goal of having Park impeached. Now that the deed is done, these protests are naturally no longer going to happen. So I guess my question is, do you think South Korea's youth have emerged from this incident more politically active than before? Although the youth have a very big platform and it's easier to disseminate ideas and opinions now, the Koreans have an image and we poke fun at ourselves for this. We call ourselves the thin boiling pot nation. And what it is, is essentially uh, thin boiling pots, they heat up very quickly and it boils stuff very quickly, but it also ends up cooling down very quickly. And whenever there's a big scandal or national outrage, we're, we're very easy to anger. We, we're very good at coming together and working for social change. I think it's in our DNA, actually, to be able to kind of coagulate like that and fight against something, as we've seen in my parents' generation, in my grandparents' generation. But at the same time, when things cool down, things definitely cool down and we kind of instantly lose interest in it. So, I mean, I'm personally also very interested to see if this interest in political activities continues and if it continues to become cool for uh, young folks to be interested in what happens in the Blue House. Well, Jay, I think that's all the time we have for today. Thanks so much for sharing your insight and being here with us. 
Thanks for having me. You can find Jay's blog, A New Moon Over South Korea, High Hopes and Skepticism, along with all of our other accompanying resources on the Asia Pacific Foundation of Canada's website, www.asiapacific.ca. And as usual, if you have any questions or comments, feel free to tweet us at Youth Element. That's it from us on political engagement in East Asia. But stick around for our upcoming episodes on topics including cafes, UFO catchers, job hunting, and more. I'm Justin. And I'm Linda. And you're listening to The The Youth Youth Element. Element. This podcast was supported by the Asia-Pacific Foundation of Canada's Postgraduate Research Fellowship Program. Songs featured in this episode include Fairy Tale by Joe Matson, Corporate Innovative by Scott Holmes, Acid Jazz by Kevin McLeod. Sound effects used in this episode were retrieved from freesound.org. They include Lightning into Thunder by Night Run X, A Harpsichord Dream by Zero Like Time. Special thanks in this episode to Jay, Julie, Sarah, Juwan, and the rest of our friends and participants who shared their insight and took the time to be interviewed. Note some of the names and part- Note some of the names of participants have been changed for privacy reasons. The views and opinions expressed in this podcast are those of the speakers and do not necessarily represent the views of the Asia Pacific Foundation of Canada.